Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Republican-controlled Wisconsin legislature has drawn people's attention to the democracy deficit in Wisconsin. Paul Krugman said Wisconsin's turning into hungry on the Great Lakes in today's New York Times. Outgoing Governor Scott Walker indicates he'll sign legislation that curtails the power of the incoming Democratic Governor Tony Evers. The legislation affects early voting, health care, public benefits, crime-fighting, taxpayer-funded lawsuits. And we thought we'd take a moment to talk about how the new legislation makes it harder for the incoming governor to renegotiate the huge subsidy for the new Foxconn manufacturing facility in Mount Pleasant. It's just outside of Racine. With me is John Nichols. He writes for The Nation, The Progressive, and The Capital Times. John is author most recently of Horsemen of the Trump-Trump-Trumpocalypse. Trumpocalypse is hard to say. And a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. Thanks for joining us, John Nichols. I'm very impressed with your pronunciation of Trumpocalypse. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, the Foxconn deal was supposed to be this enormous feather in the cap of Scott Walker when it was negotiated, this huge... Uh, Taiwan tech manufacturing company was going to bring high-tech items to Wisconsin. It was going to um, employ lots of people, uh, turn the page into the future. But he didn't even really campaign on this during the during the governor's race. Why not? What happened to the deal that soured people on it? Well, it really blew up on him uh, pretty early on. And I think a huge part of it was the price tag that was attached. Uh, the notion that you were going to promise as much as $3 billion uh, to a multinational company when uh, there was really a failure to invest in basic infrastructure of the state. I mean, the roads literally were falling apart. That's not me saying that. That's, you know, Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives. And so you had all this money uh, for a foreign company, uh, but not the basic investment back in the state. And I think that part of it really became a problem because of where Foxconn was locating down in southeastern Wisconsin, uh, not that far north of Chicago. Uh, just over the state line. And Wisconsin's a very big state. It goes all the way up to the Canadian border. And there were just, I think, an awfully lot of people around the state uh, who had a sense that this huge investment uh, wasn't really going to benefit them that much. And it's uh, peculiar, so it's that, peculiar that, 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 I mean, the the unemployment rate around there is 3%. There aren't a lot of people who need jobs there. Well, there there aren't a lot of people who need uh, jobs per se, but there are a lot of people who need good jobs. And this is a complexity of the moment. We see it not just in Wisconsin, but around the country. Uh, in Wisconsin, there's an extreme example of this problem. And that is that while there are a lot of jobs, there has not been a sufficient level of wage growth, i.e., um, you know, you may get a job, but the pay doesn't begin to rival uh, what it once did, at least proportionally. Southeastern Wisconsin uh, is was a historic manufacturing center. It was even referred to it sometimes as Little Detroit. It was a place with lots of auto plants, lots of uh, auto parts plants, with tractor plants. And so many of them have closed or downsized. But people even in that region remember very solid, strong union jobs. Uh, which provided a level of pay, at least in their moment, that was sufficient for, in many cases, one member of a family to work 
Uh, another uh, member of the family stay home with kids. Uh, you know, it's just it was a community building uh, sort of salary and a level of benefits that went with it. The loss of that has been very severely felt in that region. And so I think it's notable that even in southeastern Wisconsin, where you had this huge uh state commitment, this huge level of promised investment and actual investment, all these things happening. Uh, Scott Walker and the Republicans did worse in 2018 than Republicans had done in 2016. You know, the the, the deal itself seems so uh, imprudent. Uh, You mentioned that it was like a $3 billion subsidy. Uh, Some estimates run it up to $4.5 billion when it's uh, when you add some of the local uh, things that are subsidies going on there. Uh, That's Three hundred and forty-six thousand dollars per job. If it creates thirteen thousand new jobs, that's a that's an enormous amount. There's all these estimates that Wisconsin doesn't make its money back till twenty fifty. If then, uh, it just doesn't seem like it's financially smart. Well, there's something more too. This is you're right about the uh, the sort of exponential growth and the amount of money that was being talked about going in. Should also put in the fact that there was you know a real weakening of uh, environmental protections in the eyes of many people. A lot of issues with the use of water. There's all sorts of sort of uh, bending over backwards to to take care of this multinational corporation uh, at the expense of the people of the state, both economically and in a host of other ways. Um, so that troubled folks. But then here's the other thing. It was moving goalposts. Yes, you did hear that initial uh, talk of 13,000 jobs and all sorts of other uh, great promises. But as time went on, uh, Foxconn kept announcing, oh, well, maybe we're not going to do quite as much or maybe we're not going to do that. And there, were, there was a constant changing of the commitment. And it seemed throughout the year to be a downsizing of the commitment. And it, it wasn't just Scott Walker's critics in Wisconsin, but, uh, you know, financial writers from across the country, the Wall Street Journal and other people pointing out that this really didn't seem like a very good deal. And uh, amazingly enough, in the 21st century, uh, criticism of a of a deal like this from out of state, from folks in New York, from investment people around the world, uh, did come back to Wisconsin. And a lot of Wisconsinites saw that and started, I think, to really question whether uh, Scott Walker, who is not thought of as a particularly savvy guy as regards economic development, that, that Scott Walker himself may have been taken, so to speak. And unfortunately, it wasn't Scott Walker's money that got lost. It was that of the Wisconsin taxpayers. I'm talking with John Nichols. He writes for The Nation, The Progressive, The Capital Times. And we're talking about the Foxconn manufacturing facility uh, just outside of Racine and how it was uh, a factor here in some of the legislation that Wisconsin's been passing here in its uh, in its legislature here at the end of its session. And I wanted to ask what uh, the incoming governor could do about this in the first place. Tony Evers was saying that he thinks it's a bad deal and would like to renegotiate it. But is that really a realistic thing? Is it um, something that he can get some money back for Wisconsin taxpayers? 
I think it's reasonably realistic, although this is a very complex moment, because as you point out, in this lame duck session, there's been a lot of, you know, uh, clawing back of powers from the governor uh, back toward the legislature and also efforts to insulate the Wisconsin Economic Development uh, Corporation, something called WIDIC, um, which uh, Scott Walker established as a quasi-private uh, overseer of economic development. The legislature has tried to uh, assert its authority over that agency. Uh, Tony Evers has suggested he would like to get rid of that agency and bring the economic development authority back into the state. So putting all that on the table, saying it's it's complicated, there's a push and pull of go about where authority lies that's going to make it more complicated. The fact is that there is an argument for a renegotiation of the Foxconn deal. And that is rooted in the fact, as I mentioned before, that Foxconn has changed its commitments. Again and again and again, Foxconn has announced that it it isn't going to do certain things or it's going to do things differently. Now, I think any listener to this show would know that if you're in an agreement with someone or with a company and that company says, well, it's not going to follow the agreement as it was initially scoped out, uh, you have a right, even perhaps if you're representing taxpayers, a responsibility to go back into uh, that negotiating room and say, you know, look, things have changed. Here's how we might want to reposition this. Evers has been actually very much a moderate on this. In the gubernatorial primary, in the Democratic primary, there were some Democrats who were saying they wanted to kill the deal, just stop it altogether. Uh, Evers has never quite been there. He said it's a bad deal. He would like to renegotiate it. Um, that's a very mainstream position that, frankly, I, I think you would find substantial support for not just among Democrats and critics of Scott Walker, but frankly, among some sensible Republicans in Wisconsin. John Nichols writes for The Nation, The Progressive, and The Capital Times. He's the author most recently of Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. We've been chatting about some of the uh, powers that have been curtailed by the Republican legislature in Wisconsin and some that affect the Foxcom manufacturing facility outside of Racine. It's a behemoth. The Taiwan-based companies uh, trying to go in there and uh, create a facility uh, right there in Wisconsin. Thanks a lot for joining us, John Nichols. Great pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about George H.W. Bush and the war on drugs. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last week, former President George H.W. Bush was laid to rest at his presidential museum. Lots of reminiscing went on about his presidency, some of it rosy and some of it critical. Among the difficult memories is recalling how President Bush expanded the war on drugs. It was a big part of his agenda and the subject of his first address to the nation. Here's an excerpt. Turn on the evening news or pick up the morning paper and you'll see what some Americans know just by stepping out their front door. Our most serious problem today is cocaine and in particular crack. Who's responsible? Let me tell you straight out. 
everyone who uses drugs, everyone who sells drugs, and everyone who looks the other way. This, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. It could easily have been heroin or PCP. It's as innocent looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones and it's murdering our children. Let there be no mistake, this stuff is poison. That's George H.W. Bush in his first address to the nation about the war on drugs. Let's talk about President Bush and the war on drugs with historian Matthew Pembleton. His recent book is Containing Addiction, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the Origins of America's Global Drug War. He's a lecturer at American University. His article in the Washington Post was George H.W. Bush's biggest failure, the war on drugs. Thanks for joining us, Matthew Pembleton. Thanks for having me, Jerome. I wonder, you know, the painful thing to hear uh, President Bush doing there is really coming down on individuals who take drugs. Um, and, you know, like the crackdown was going to come on them. Uh, this is, you know, <laughs> this is kind of hard to look at today when we've got prisons full of uh, drug users. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, one of the fundamental strategies of the war on drugs is that there's no distinction between a user and a peddler or a dealer, and um, that everybody's really complicit. And that's one of the big messages that he pushes in this speech. He later says that, you know, Americans are paying for murder in places like Colombia and Peru. So it was a pretty tough message. And he put his money where his mouth is. Uh, the reason why I think George W. H. W. Bush is uh, in kind of remembered for this is because he really ramped up the budget for this kind of thing. Yeah, he certainly did. Um, just in the course of his own presidency, the drug war budget goes from about five billion to um, twelve billion. So it's a pretty profound increase. It's the single largest uh, increase in the history of U.S. drug enforcement. We remember that time as the crack epidemic, and obviously people wanted something to be done about the crack epidemic, um, and there was a lot of movement for that. But it was also the end of the Cold War, and um, people seemed to be searching, the military seemed to be searching for a new mission, and they they're a part of this too. The, the the military, you go out and you you go out abroad and and find who's who's getting the drugs and you interdict. That that was a big push for the U.S. Absolutely, and and in that speech, he says, you know, he makes the case for putting uh, another billion dollars into interdiction there and carving out a specific role for the U.S. military. Um, so one of the things that's going on here is that with the Cold War ending, it's like the, the American national security state has lost its original antagonist. Um, and it needs something to replace that. And what it finds, at least for a while, is the war on drugs. Um, and that really kind of carries us over. There's a really clear link between the Cold War, the drug war, and then the war on terror. There's uh, also – a undercover initiative that goes on during the Bush administration. He was the former head of the CIA, and he initiates a secret program in Colombia that ends up being very enduring. Yeah, I mean, the, the U.S. investment in Colombia begins um, around this time, and 
it's carried forward all the way through uh, the Clinton administration into uh, the administration of George W. Bush with Plan Colombia, where the U.S. pours uh, about another $10 billion into Colombia. Um, I mean, you, you have to give some credit where it's due that it did help stabilize the country to some degree, which was torn by all of these rival um, factions. But it didn't do very much to stop the flow of drugs to the United States. The um, undercover uh, mission that was in Colombia at the time of 9-11, it was the largest CIA operation in the world. I did not did not know that. Yeah, I mean, that that was the largest theater of covert operations um, prior to 9-11 and the war on terror. And then the security state gets a new mission and the war on drugs kind of fades back into the background. Uh, what happened? Uh, how much did the prison population begin ramping up at this time? Uh, pretty dramatically. I, I don't have the chart in front of me right now, but um, that the curve begins to bend quite sharply at the end of um, the Reagan administration and all through the Bush administration. And you know, it has to be said, this is a bipartisan issue. It continued to to curve up quite sharply under Clinton as well. Was there uh, – could you tell um, what the intent was uh, during this time? Because we see so many people, uh, African-Americans, people of color, who got picked up in this rather than white people. Um, how did that – How did that um, That seems unintentional, but, uh, but maybe not. It, yeah, I'm glad you asked. I mean this is one of the fundamental questions to the entire history of – drug enforcement in the United States and and certainly to the war on drugs, you know, is I think we can presume a certain amount of good faith. I mean, Bush talks about how seeing these neighborhoods where kids are playing up on like drug strewn playgrounds just like breaks his heart. And maybe that's crocodile tears, but I'm not, um, I'm not sure. Um, but the, the reality is, is that all of these issues kind of become conflated for policymakers. And, you know, when they look at a problem like drugs, it, it, it looks different depending on where it appears socioeconomically, you know? So, um, when addiction appears at the top end of society, um, those people tend to have more resources and are better able to manage their addiction. Um, it's less disruptive and therefore it looks less threatening and like a medical problem. But when it happens in the sort of the lower rungs of society where people are already barely hanging on, um, drugs and addiction are really disruptive and really dis destructive. Um, so that's why it kind of looks more alarming. Um, you know, so the, the irony there is that Bush talks about, you know, going into the projects specifically to help protect those people from crime. But when uh, there's no distinction between a user and a dealer and uh, everybody's sort of self-medicating on the only kind of drugs that they really have legal access to or not legal access to, but they don't, the only kind of drugs that they do have access to. Um, it's not surprising that everybody's going to be swept up into it. Now, other politicians, uh, Joe Biden helped sponsor some of the legislation during the Clinton administration, said he has regrets about doing that, thinks it was a mistake. Uh, did George H.W. Bush ever express regrets about the, the war on drugs and the things that uh, happened during his administration? Uh, not to my knowledge. And that actually brings up kind of a, uh, an, an interesting story that goes on behind this speech where 
you know, he opens that speech by showing off this bag of crack that he says was bought across the street um, from the White House. And in that Washington Post piece, I talk about the story behind this, which we've known about for a while. Actually, it kind of broke like the month after the speech. But the DEA actually had to set up uh, a local high school kid and give him directions in order to get him there. The kid had no idea where the White House was. But they specifically wanted to bust him there in front of the White House in order to use him as a prop in the drug war. So they could um, say, hey, we did this right across from the White House. We, we got this bag exactly. right across from yeah, the White th- House. Yeah, that's how bad the problem is, that it's happening right outside the White House. Well, no, it wasn't. You specifically orchestrated this operation to make it seem as if it was. Um, so that's obviously entrapment. And um, when this kid, his name is Keith Jackson, when his trial goes up, it's thrown out by two different juries. And... Um, unfortunately, he is later convicted on uh, some smaller uh, undercover buys that had been made in the run-up to this arrest and, and goes away on a mandatory sentence. I believe he serves like eight or nine years on a 10-year on a sentence. Um, so this whole thing like blows up in Bush's face like right away. And uh, he was super annoyed and unrepentant whenever anybody would kind of bring it up to him and ask like, well, how could you do this? Like, is this problem as big as you're making it out to be? And his attitude was always very dismissive and like, what are you on the side of the drug dealers? We're talking with Matthew Pembleton. His recent book is Containing Addiction, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the Origins of America's Global Drug War. We're talking about the presidency of George H.W. Bush. We're going to have Matthew back in a few minutes, and we'll talk a little bit more about the origins and the aftermath of George H.W. Bush and the drug war. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we were talking about the drug war and the late President George H.W. Bush. And we're going to spin the clock a little bit further back and a little bit forward on that now with Matthew Pembleton. His recent book is Containing Addiction, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the Origins of America's Global Drug War. And I wanted to ask a question about the origins of the punitive attitude that we have in this country. Um, You spin it back to the 30s and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And uh, we had a drug czar. And I think most people probably think, oh, the drug czar was something that happened in the Reagan administration or something or the Nixon administration. But it it was way back in the 30s that this thing started. Yeah, thanks for asking, Jerome. Um, So my book, Containing Addiction, is about the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And they're really like the grandpa to the DEA. And for most of their history, they're led by a guy by the name of Harry J. Anslinger, who is kind of the um, figure that most fits the bill of this idea of the drug war is like the, the drug czar is like this autocratic kind of figure who really owns that issue um, to the exclusion of everybody else. And one of the things I was really interested in exploring in this book is is digging into that idea of um, drugs as crime and is something that must be punished rather than treated. And, um, yeah, it goes all the way back to the 1930s, maybe even a little bit earlier. And it kind of led to this very particular kind of counter-narcotic strategy because um, the FBN didn't have much faith that you could treat the problem, that there was not much you could do to 
cut the demand for drugs, which meant that you had to focus on supply if you were going to solve the drug problem. And you can't really do that with um, a purely domestic focus. So after World War II, they finally begin to go abroad. And um, the bulk of the book is really kind of about the, the development of this idea, um, as we would have heard it in the George W. Bush years, that you have to fight them over there so you don't have to fight them here, that you could solve the drug war in places like the Middle East or Southeast Asia or South America instead of on the streets of um, the United States. And, you know, it, it's that instinct that drugs are a security problem and a criminal problem that leads people like Bush, who come along a bit later, to crack down on places like the projects instead of places like Wall Street, where people are also drug users. And it's also instructive to think about what followed President Bush. Um, President Clinton came right into office, and um, much like President Bush, he started right in on the drug war, and they and they signed this legislation that um, was very uh, big, the 1994 Violent Crime Control Act. Um, this was really filled up the jails. Absolutely. It was kind of like the final... Um the final nail in the coffin on the era of mass incarceration and like the sort of the last piece of the puzzle to really create this, this just grotesque system that, you know, we put the United States in a place where it was locking up a greater percentage of its population than any other nation on earth. You know, this is America, the land of the free, and it became America, the land of mass incarceration. Um, and the drug war is one of the agents of that change. Now, there's been so much uh, discussion about this, and there's other alternatives out there. People always point to Portugal as a place that has decriminalized and they get treatment for people who uh, – they have a, a really extensive treatment program for people who are using drugs. Um, is this uh, new attitude winning out there, or are we um, so stuck in the rut the, of uh, of our, our our long thinking on this that we cannot uh, adjust our our behavior. Oh, man, it it depends on the day. You know, some days are very encouraging, uh, and other days are are uh, very discouraging. Um, you know, Panama is a very different um, model than what we have in the United States. One of the problems with the the United States it, it's a very different society and. You know, when you run a problem like the drug war that has all of its own complexities built into it through all of the fundamental tensions and contradictions of American life, like structural racism and structural inequality, it's like I, I think that's why the war on drugs comes out in some really um, destructive and unfortunate ways and, and is often counterproductive. In terms of like looking forward, I think Portugal does offer some models. If I could wave a wand, you know, I would I think we should really think seriously about um, decriminalizing all forms of drug possession. Uh, that said, I wouldn't be terribly optimistic uh, going forward, and particularly something I'd, I'd want to point out to your listeners is with Trump's appointment of um, Bill Barr as his new incoming attorney general, uh, that doesn't really bode well, that Bill Barr was one of the primary sort of soldiers in George H.W. Bush's drug war, and he came in in 91 and was really responsible for carrying out this program. And he, I guess, never had any contrition about this? It doesn't have second thoughts? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, he very much sees this as a law and order thing, as a uh, criminal justice, and as a national security issue. Um, 
He's got a remarkable oral history that's on file at the Miller Center, um, and you can go in there and read it, and he, and he lays out his views quite clearly. Um, you know, his Department of Justice put out a book called The Case for More Incarceration. Um, he talks about how he was very reluctant to kind of cede any authority to the drug czar, that he thought that this was basically the attorney general's uh, project. And he really pushed for the further militarization of the drug war. Um, his philosophy is not to capture drug dealers and drug traffickers, but to kill them. And I, I was surprised going back and reading some of the quotes from people who were um, even doing George H.W. Bush's time. Uh, the sheriff in uh, Los Angeles uh, seemed to say something about going out and really killing people. There's a Rodrigo Duterte uh, figures out there in, in the United States. Yeah, you were quoting Daryl Gates, who was the chief of the LAPD and the founder of the D.A.R.E. program, which, you know, many of us, uh, many people my age grew up with in elementary school. And one year after Bush's big televised address in September of 81, Daryl Gates tells the Senate that casual drug users should be taken out and shot. You know, that that's the kind of mentality. Talking with Matthew Pembleton, he is a historian. His recent book is Containing Addiction, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the Origin of America's Global Drug War. He's a lecturer at American University and um, he's wrote a piece in the Washington Post that we've been discussing, George H.W. Bush's Biggest Failure, the War on Drugs. So uh, it's been good uh, talking with uh, Matthew Pendleton. Thanks a lot for joining us. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to chat a bit about the border wall and different aspects of the border wall. It's making quite a bit of news in the budget these days. Stay tuned for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Thank you.